Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 34, Leading When It Matters Most, Crisis Leadership 101. In this episode, we will be exploring the concept of meta-leadership as it applies to leading during crisis. What is it? Why is it important? And how does it apply to disaster management? To this end, we'll be speaking with Eric McNulty from the Harvard National Leadership Preparedness Initiative about decision bias, as well as sharing some tools of the trade. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. One of my favorite disaster quips of all time is to beware of creating a process without a people. Uh, it comes from the work of the late and great Dr. Corintelli, uh, who's one of my favorite disaster scholars. And since I first heard it, I have noticed that in disaster management, we love to create little processes and plans and systems that would work perfectly if those pesky humans would just stop interacting with it. Uh, whether it's the incident command system or risk assessment algorithms or evacuation plans telling you not to go and collect your children from school before leaving, uh, all the way down to, to fire alarm non-compliance, it is more clear to me than ever that systems don't solve problems during disaster. People do. You need good leaders surrounded by good people. Yeah, I mean, why can't people just follow the checklist? Come on, get with the program. <laughs> I think uh, we just need more checklists and more decision aids. We'll get through this disaster. Yeah, I mean, the question really comes down to what does good leadership look like during a disaster? Because we know that uh, having just these frameworks and, and top-down systematic approaches don't solve disasters. There's there's another more important element uh, that we see in, in good responses, and that's what we want to talk about today. That's right. There are many, many, many different frameworks uh, for decision-making or leadership, but one group has looked at this question in depth. Josh, you had a chance to talk to them. Yeah, I had a chance to speak with Eric McNulty. He's one of the authors of a new book that came out this past summer called You're It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. Uh, for those not familiar with the NPLI, it's the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. It's a uh, joint collaboration between the Harvard School of Public Health and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And their purpose is to try and figure out what makes for a good crisis leader. How is crisis leadership different? And when we have these overwhelming um, responses, how do you be the one that can become the true meta leader and uh, successfully lead an incident. So without any further to do, let's get down to the interview. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on Epic Podcast. Uh, before we get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I've been with the, the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative for the past 10 years. I joined here in uh, 2008. Um, coming from a stint at Harvard Business School prior to that, and I was in, in communications in the private sector prior to coming to Harvard. And so people often ask, you know, how did you get into this crisis leadership world? And it was certainly part by accident. Uh, but then the thing that really brought me into it and has, has kept me here was that um, back on 9-11, I was actually scheduled to be on American Flight 11. Uh, and it was just a fluke of the calendar that the business trip I was scheduled to be on was pushed one day earlier. Uh, so rather than being on a plane that flew into a building and, and perishing, uh, I was awakened by a call from home saying, turn on the TV. Um, saw those, uh, those events unfold, and I had uh, both staff and clients flying out of New York that morning. Um, so it took quite a while to find out if they were okay, and fortunately they, they were. 
Um, and it was the realization that I had been given a second chance. Quite, you know, it was a fluke, but I was given a second mm-hmm. chance and a chance to, to give back to the people who work so hard to keep us safe and make our communities resilient. And so when this opportunity came around, I decided to, to commit here and to focus that what I had come to learn through my communications work and in my work at the business school, learning about leadership and strategy and other topics, uh, to bring that to bear and to work with this community, emergency managers and business continuity professionals and others um, who are subject matter experts in a, in a very specialized world, uh, but to try and bring that in and uh, to help improve practice there in some way. I just finished reading your your, your new book here. Um, so, crisis change and how to lead when it matters most. What was the the concept of the book, and how did what were you trying to get across with this project? Well, we've been, we've been doing this here for 15 years of of teaching leadership to those who respond when it matters most, um, be it military or civilian, public or private sector. Uh, the people who spend their their days and nights uh, putting themselves in harm way, harm's way to to help protect others, and we really wanted to get the ideas out to a to a larger audience uh, to have the most positive impact we could. You know, the title of the book is "You're It," and that's the role that people like yourself and your listeners have have stepped into. They're they're it. So you know, be it a fire or a shooting or whatever else has happened, you're it, and you know, one of the things we've, we've come to realize is that uh, there's lots of training on management in, in this field and lots of the, the nuts and bolts of incident command and processes and procedures that are all incredibly important. I don't want to minimize them. Uh, but then when you actually have to lead people uh, within that context, you have to motivate them, understand them, um, get them unified in their purpose, and that requires a different set of skills. And so what we're hoping in, with the book is to spread that knowledge more widely and give people a real gateway in. And the book is it's got great stories. We help people like the stories, but also a lot of tools to help you apply the ideas in the book to uh, be able to step forward when, when it is that moment when you're it, to be as effective a leader as you can be. I really appreciated a lot of the uh, kind of concrete tools that were mentioned. Um, as you know, there's lots of books out there about leadership in general. What, uh, what makes crisis leadership different than, than normal leadership? Um, a lot and not much at the same time. Uh, and I say that because, um, you know, we get people because of their roles and crisis is, is the world they've chosen to live in. And, uh, and so they want to know how to be better when the, when the pressure is on. And certainly there's a bit about, you know, quite a bit about understanding how your brain works under stress uh, and how to communicate clearly when things seem chaotic around you. Um, however, uh, typically through... About halfway through any seminar or class, someone will say, hey, you know, I can use this stuff every day, can't I? And it's like, yep, the light bulb goes off. Because the things we teach, again, about understanding how your how your brain is hardwired, so what are your biases, um, how do you deal with stress, how do you process information, and then how do you make decisions, how do you communicate, how do you connect with people, how do you build relationships, how do you negotiate, those are all skills you can use absolutely every day. It's in the moment when that crisis hits, you have to be able to step up to a different level. So I use a, a golf analogy, and pardon me for your, your listeners for a sports analogy, but yeah. you know, the average weekend golfer uses the same basic equipment and plays the same 
you know, number of holes by the same rules that Tiger Woods or any one of the other top pros does. The difference is that, you know, Tiger can do it when the cameras are on and there's 10,000 people standing around watching you try and sink that putt. Um, you know, it's a really high-stake situation. Um, but he's still using a putter, maybe by the same manufacturer, it's the one that's in your bag, and he's still on the 17th green or whatever. I mean, so the, the conditions are different but the same. Right. And it's that ability to step up and really, you know, do it when it counts that, that makes a difference for a crisis leader. So you mentioned the stories, and two of the ones that I appreciated the most were uh, the leadership accounts from Admiral Thad Allen and Admiral Nessinger. And uh, coming from a Coast Guard background myself, they were doubly impactful. How did you collect those behind-the-scenes perspectives? Well, one of the uh, the fortunate things here at the NPLI is that we have alumni who are still in the field and practicing. And what they will do often is invite us uh, to come shadow them during an event. Um, so, for example, you write about Avril Neffinger in, in uh, Deepwater Horizon. Um, my colleague, Larry Marcus, and I were with Peter in the Gulf during Deepwater Horizon. Peter, when he was made Deputy National Incident Commander, called and said, this looks like it could be interesting. Do you want to come down? And so we spent several days with him flying over the spill, um, going to the different operations centers, sitting in on calls and meetings. Uh, we all, um, also, Admiral Landry, who was the uh, Unified Area Commander, was a current student at the time. One of Bobby Jindal's uh, emergency management folks, Pat Santos, was a student at the time. We visited the two of them as well. So whenever possible, we do get out into the field and try and get things firsthand. So we observe, we ask questions. We, we don't go out and consult in the middle of an event, or, but we do go out and as I say, observe, we ask questions, trying to distill what are the larger principles we can pull out of whatever's working or not working. Uh, and we've been say, very fortunate that a number of our alumni have, have invited us in. Now, in some of the other stories in the book, we, we did go out and we, we had seen, seen events happen, so we would go out and just interview someone to find out what happened and use our meta leadership framework as the as the uh the lens for the for the interview and, and analyzing the interview. But in a lot of those actual uh disaster stories, uh we were fortunate to be there um in the moment and are still very much in touch with those people. Todd Allen's been a friend of the program for a long time. Apple Neffinger is now on our faculty here at the program. Uh, and a number of other people who are in there are still, you know, we, once we get you, we never let you go. It's, uh, it's like a family. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was certainly just a wealth of, of experience. And you mentioned meta leadership. So that's definitely one of the, the main themes and, and concepts that's described in the book. And you start off with the, uh, the Boston Marathon uh, response and the concepts of swarm leadership. For people that haven't heard those terms before, what, what exactly is that? So meta-leadership is a framework we use. It's essentially a framework. It's not a theory, but it's an organizing framework for how to figure out how you're going to lead, um, explain why why it's going right or why it's going wrong so you can correct course as needed. And so by meta, we mean we're taking the, the, the large view, the, the wide view of what's happening. And so often in a, in a disaster or in a crisis situation, so our, our brain naturally gets very narrowly focused. What's right in front of us? The problem we have to solve right this second. And if you're an operator, if you're an emergency manager, that may be the right place to be. If you're trying to lead and figure out where you go next, you've got to take that broader view so you can anticipate how a situation is going to evolve. Who are the various stakeholders? 
what's the what's going to happen what's going to be required not just right now but 6 12 24 hours from now 2 3 5 days down um what's this going to look like and so that meta view that framework and it has three dimensions there's the person who are you how are you dealing emotionally cognitively psychologically are you grounded and able to make decisions communicate process information there's a situation and understanding what's really going on and what needs to be done about it. And that's more than just situational awareness, but it's understanding, uh, again, how different people are perceiving the situation because you may see one thing and members of the general public may see something totally different or political figures even think differently than you, trying to get those multiple perspectives. And then the last dimension is connectivity. It's are you connected to the right people and entities in the ways you need to be to get to the best possible outcome? So are your, the various services and agencies talking well together and working in concert? Um, are you, is the public on your side or are they against you? Um, are the, is the private sector behaving and, and uh, acting productively alongside you? Have you built those relationships? So the person, the situation, and the connectivity are the three dimensions which, which you can look at any given incident. And the concept of swarm leadership you mentioned, that can dig specifically out of the Boston Marathon bombing, where we saw an incredible level of coordination and collaboration, both among the public sector agencies as well as with the, the private and nonprofit sector and the general public over that five-day period between the, when it started with the bombings and then ended with the apprehension of the, of the younger brother, Sonayev brother. Mm -hmm. um, and we tried to pull that apart and figure out why did that happen. And it very much came to the behaviors of leaders, um, they were able to work swiftly and in synchrony, um, and we came up with five behavioral principles that are outlined in the book, the first of which is unity of mission. Everyone was there to save lives, and that's to say, not just the first responders and the usual emergency response agencies, but the private sector and nonprofit and the public working together. Um, the second was generosity of spirit and action. People were very much helping each other out. You know, what do you got? What do you need? and uh, many examples of people acting across organizational boundaries, not fighting with each other, but saying, hey, how can I help make you a success? The third one was people stayed in their lanes and they helped others stay in there. So they, you know, the whole swarm piece, came. that name came about because it turned out there was no one exercising overall operational command of that response. Um, they did it collaboratively. Yet the chains of command were very much in place and functioning within Boston Police, Fire, State Police, EMS. All the different entities had chains of command that were working well. So people knew they could do their job and the other agencies alongside them were going to do their job. The fourth principle, perhaps the toughest one for human beings, no ego, no blame. There was no finger pointing. There was no chest thumping among the different the leaders of those different organizations, they knew they were either going to succeed or fail together. And I can tell you there were, there were definitely some sharp elbows behind closed doors. Not everything was perfect and rosy, yet they kept those disagreements behind closed doors and were able to resolve them. And so it didn't cascade down to cause conflict among the frontline workers. The public wasn't looking at people who were uh, arguing with each other. It was a very unified uh, front that they gave to the public. And the fifth principle was a foundation of trust-based relationships. You see, it turns out that the success in 2013 didn't start in 2013. It started at least as far back as 2004 because 
every year in Boston, the various agencies use the major events in town, uh, first night on, July, on New Year's Eve, the marathon in April, and the 4th of July celebration as planned emergencies. And they mm-hmm. practice working, to, working together, and they train as they fight, as they say, um, trying new equipment, trying new processes, getting used to working together so they could get into a battle rhythm really quickly, and they, they trusted each other. Uh, and people were very much on first-name basis um, at that leadership level, and they were used to being in the field together. So it made it a, mu- a much smoother uh, operation. So those five principles of, of swarm leadership are how we described it, went back to them, and they said, yes, that, that wasn't how we were thinking about it, but it's exactly how we were doing it. And now organizations like FEMA and the Red Cross are beginning to prospectively go into the field with those five behavioral principles in mind, saying this is how we want to be as we deploy, and we're beginning to collect evidence on how that works. Um, So that's what we really tried to do. One of the other tools you mentioned uh, in the book is this uh, pop doc, which is kind of based on what some people may be familiar with, the ODA loop. Uh, What was that tool aimed at teaching? So it absolutely, it built off uh, Boyd's OODA loop, which you know those who were any Air Force or any pilots in, in the uh, audience will know is one of the basic tools they teach fighter pilots: observe, orient, decide, and act. And we built upon it both because a, a leader's environment is more complex than the cockpit of a fighter plane, uh, and also because what we did was we mapped the different cognitive processes. So how does your brain work when everything's going really well and you're processing information and getting things done? So you perceive, you gather data, you're looking at what's around you, what's what's happening. And then you orient, you find patterns. You say, okay, this is what I think that data means, and here's what's relevant and here's irrelevant. Once you detect a pattern, patterns tend to repeat, so you can predict. That's the second P in POP predict what's going to happen next and be thinking what's the probability of option A, B, or C. And when you begin to predict, that then leads you from thinking about something to doing something about it. So when you you go over to the dock side of pop dock, the D is for decide. You've got to make decisions. You've got to get things moving. And once you make decisions, you've got to operationalize them. You're going to need people. They're going to need resources. They're going to need time. What's it going to take to carry out that decision? And finally, you've got to communicate so everyone knows what's going on. What's the picture look like? How's it going to change? What are we trying to do? And we position that pop doc around to figure eight, to get people to go, to realize they have to go around and around and around. It's the infinity loop. Because once you've made decisions, you've started to carry out actions, you've communicated, you will have an impact on the situation. So you've got to perceive again and say, okay, did what we do have the impact we thought it was going to or not? What's the, what's the new pattern? What do we predict? Right. And along and away you go. So it's a way of, again, getting you into a battle rhythm either personally or as a team to keep you focused on where you've got to go and, and attuned to the changing nature of the situation. That's awesome. I, th- I think a lot of these terms, uh, you know, I can see them being incorporated into the uh, uh, emergency management vernacular. I, also, I like the concept of the basement as well. And, and uh, you know, I think there's there's been a few workshops uh, now that, kind of try and incorporate some basic neuroscience and understanding your own stress physiology. Um, But I appreciated this concept of thinking about a basement response. Maybe you can just explain that in terms of your kind of, I I think a lot of us have been stuck in the basement before. (laughs) Sure. And and the basement is is a term we use for the amygdala hijack or the reptilian brain 
it's that basic freeze flight fight response that is programmed into all of us. That's evolutionary. We share with all mammals and most animals, actually, um, that when there is a perceived threat, because your brain's number one job is to keep you alive, you go into survival mode. You go into a bit of panic, and it is freeze, flight, fight. In that sequence, uh, it's, it's a linear you know, Brain tries whichever one works. You know, each each one in the sequence to see what works to keep you alive, right. and that's great. That's great if you're being you know confronted with a life and death situation. If you're you know someone with a with a gun or the you know a bear is attacking you, uh, all depending on which kind of bear, um, whether you flee or whether you flee or fight <laughs> right. uh, or free, freeze or fight. Um, however. You're not good at making decisions. You're not good at complex problem solving. Your brain, when your brain is in panic mode, it's, the rest of your brain kind of shuts off and give priority to let's get out of here alive. Mm-hmm. So what we t- teach people is you've got to be able to intentionally move from that basement up into the other parts of your brain, into through your routines where you know what you're doing, you demonstrate some self-confidence, get your brain out of survival mode, and then you can engage the the parts of your brain that do complex problem solving and really figure out the what are we going to do about this situation. But you can't get out of the basement without so making that intentional move. And it can be as simple as three deep breaths or going to a practice protocol. I mean, most of your listeners, if they're in emergency management, they know the bad thing happens. They've got a checklist to go to or they've got a process or a protocol they've, they have rehearsed. That Going and doing that gets you out of the basement, demonstrating self-competence. Once your brain says you know, have some idea of what to do, then you begin to calm down. Your brain resets almost like rebooting a computer, and you can begin to do the complex problem solving. So we just give a name to it that people have some language. uh, I'm sure you know if someone's panicked and you say, hey, stop panicking, the first reaction (laughs) is, I'm not panicking. (laughs) <laughs> and make it worse, right? <laughs> exactly. No, I think that, that that could be very useful. I think you're in the basement, and uh, sometimes having an outside perspective uh, can be useful to let you know. Um, well, excellent. So I think, uh, I mean, overall, uh, the book has lots of really great tools and and uh, uh, just fascinating anecdotes for those who are interested in kind of behind the scenes view of some of these major responses. What advice would you have for somebody who's trying to hone their crisis leadership skills? Maybe they've been to a few responses, but they're looking to become that uh, that next level in, in, in leadership. How do people get there? Well, I think it, it really starts with knowing yourself, and that's how you'll, you'll know how to best respond in the midst of a crisis. And that's why in the book, at the end of each chapter, we have a series of questions, and we encourage people to keep a little leadership journal, as it were. And you can go through and answer those questions, or if you don't have the book and you want to do it, just keeping a record of when things went well. What, what were you feeling? What did you do? What about? What do you think uh, made it go well? Or if something didn't go well, you have an interaction with with your boss or with a coworker, and it doesn't go so well. Take a few moments to reflect, and that building that reflective practice helps you understand who you are, and that in turn helps you understand. What went well, particularly well today? When did I feel really great about something that happened today? And if you're going to lead, you need people to follow you. And if they're going to follow you, they have to you know, find something compelling about you. And that's going to be not so much that you're the special superhero, but it is you understand them, you understand what motivates them, you're clear about where you want people to go. And doing a little bit of reflection, and it feels a little funny to people sometimes, particularly if you, you're used to an action-oriented job, you think, oh, I'm not going to sit and do this. But those few minutes of self-learning every day, every couple of days, 
really propel you forward and make you a uh, someone who's, who's connected both internally and externally, and that's what makes you successful as a leader. Well, I would certainly encourage anybody who's serious about crisis leadership to uh, read your book. Uh, again, it's called You're It. And Eric, thanks so much. So there's just so much to unpack from that interview. It, clearly, this is someone who has done a lot of thinking about leadership in, in crisis. Uh, one of the things that really stuck in my mind was this idea of shadowing leaders in real time during an incident. That Just the idea of that, you know, that must require so much confidence and so much trust. Yeah, and I think this is just the cutting edge in terms of pushing emergency management forward. This is, you know, a, a true living uh, laboratory where we're trying to figure out in real time um, how do uh, people uh, respond under stressful situations? How does leadership change? Um, you look at the work through Colorado and some of the uh, research done through the National, uh, the Natural Hazards Center, and uh, they're one of the only other groups that have really looked at real time uh, research during an actual event. So I think it's just fascinating. For those who haven't had a chance to read the book, I'd recommend it. The anecdotes uh, alone are, are definitely worth the read. One of the other things that really stuck out for me was this idea of swarm leadership. And the five, the five principles, again, were unity of mission, generosity of spirit and action, staying in your own lane while helping others, uh, the no ego, no blame idea, and the foundational relationships within, within the room or the incident. Uh, Josh, uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about um, the incident command system, and one of the principles or that can be implied is this idea of unified command. Is that the same thing as swarm leadership? Well, it's interesting. I mean, under a perfect system, uh, everybody would, you know, work in, under a unified command and everyone would be literate in that uh, process and be able to integrate seamlessly. We know in the real world that will never happen. Um, you hear a lot of people talking about... Uh, you know, almost ICS or modified ICS. I think if you have this concept of swarm leadership, it gives you a kind of cognitive tool for lack of a better term for thinking about how you can organize different organizations, different accountabilities, different groups into one big system, um, regardless of if they're speaking the same language up front. And uh, the example in the book was talking about the Boston Marathon response, and they had multiple accountabilities, different agencies, you know, uh, there was responders involved in the event who are working in Boston. And there's also people who are working out of Washington and in many other places. So how do you uh, become an influential leader uh, outside of your uh, maybe traditional span of control or your, your usual network? And that's kind of what they talk about of multiple people coming together and tackling the problem from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if this would be applicable to the concept of the open source problem solving where the leader is the issue. The leader is the mission and it's just anyone who has anything to say uh, comes together. You know, maybe that won't work so well in, in a, a, an incident or an urgent situation, but maybe it doesn't need to be crowdsourced, but it does need to be understood that it's okay to have nobody necessarily in direct command. It's okay just to work together. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. Uh, I mean, that flies in the face of convention for, you know, the traditional mm -hmm. teaching for emergency management. And I can, I can hear people uh, um, slamming on the brakes already, uh, you know, listening to those concepts. But uh, when we look at what's actually worked and we look at uh, where organizations have fallen down in the past, I mean, um, the, these 
kind of organic leadership cooperatives seem to actually be very effective. And uh, as long as you understand what's happening and you still have uh, an appropriate amount of safety built into the system and accountability and, and those sort of things, um, I think it can be very effective. Yeah, I, I think there's probably a place for it. Uh, I, I do like the idea of it. I One element that I struggle with is this idea of no ego or leaving your ego at the door. I'm going to be honest, to me, that's about as useful as saying don't panic or calm down. I, people are, they're part and parcel with their ego. You can't just leave it behind. It is part of who you are. And I wonder if this is a really a disaster myth about leaving your ego at the door. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you need to be um, astute and uh, aware of that the, there's going to be political considerations, there's going to be interpersonal considerations in every disaster. And to be a good leader, I think you need to not pretend those don't exist, but you need to know how to intelligently mm -hmm. manage them. Um, you know, being having some emotional intelligence, and we've all been in heated discussions and heated meetings. And, um, you know, sometimes people act differently at 3am in an EOC than they do uh, when you're, you know, used to interacting with them on a normal date. So um, I, I think we will always have an emotional um, component to our response. It's just being aware of it. I think I understand what they mean when they say leave the ego at the door. Let's, you know, not play pokey chest and and uh, get up in each other's faces. Uh, I think a better way of explaining this to me or a way that made more sense to me uh, is that idea behind crisis communication of compassion before cognition. If you can understand where this other person is coming from, or you can understand the situation that they're in and why they are acting this way, uh, it's far easier to manage them or even leverage that what is often just passion wrapped up in anger and this tr true drive to, to have their solution uh, inputted. Uh, it, that can be leveraged. You know, I don't want a bunch of really calm, really detached people in my EOC. I want people who are passionate about implementing a solution or, or solving this problem yeah being mission focused uh, it's, it's important uh, there's a lot of um, workshops and, and courses out there that will try and include a, a neuroscience explanation to, mm. to people and and my pet peeve uh, coming from a medical background is you know you can't use epinephrine to justify everything at the end of the day you, <laughs> you always hear people coming back to you know describing the, fl the fight or flight response and, and the, yeah they the love to talk about the lizard brain nervous and, system yeah, works yeah. I mean part of it is is, is important I mean um, Eric talked about uh, uh, this concept of being in the basement, you know, you have this kind of hijack of your emotional center and being aware of when that's happening is, is part of being a good leader and you have to start with leading yourself first. Um, and I do think that being able to point it out in other people can be helpful, um, but it's a little bit at risk of becoming reductionist sometimes. So mm -hmm. uh, take it with a grain of salt, but um, understanding how people respond under stress and, and how we can make errors under stress is, is vitally important. Um, we know that our uh, ability to think critically changes. Uh, we rely more on on pattern recognition, um, and then we're open to a different set of biases uh, when we're stressed than when we have more time to, to think about a problem uh, systematically. That's right. And you found an article on this, didn't you? Yeah. So there's a few great review articles um, about specifically cognitive bias in crisis. And I would encourage listeners to have a, um, a quick look at an easy Google search. You'll, you'll find a, a bunch of them. Um, for Journal Club this time, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And uh, it might not be as scholarly as normal, but uh, with an actual journal article, but 
if you look at the Wikipedia list and the um, entry on cognitive bias, you'll see a list of about 75 different kinds of, of cognitive bias that exist. Uh, there's all sorts. There's the uh, ambiguity effect, there's belief bias, there's premature closure, um, groupthink, the list goes on and on. This is something that a lot of different professions have really embraced. In medicine, we, we talk about how medical errors are made all the time based on um, uh, diagnostic bias. So going through this list, I think, would be a great exercise for anybody. If you haven't had time to read a little bit about what cognitive bias is, it's something that we're all prone to. But at different times, we're prone to different kinds of bias. And then I think just going through this list is, is kind of interesting, asking yourself, when have you maybe been prone to some of these biases? And really being aware of them is the best way to defend against making a, um, an improper decision. Uh, because it can certainly be easy. And, and nobody you know, in, intentionally wants to make a, a wrong decision. But if you know what the, where the traps are uh, and where the dragons lie, then you can potentially avert that. Time for the tool of the trade. All right. So first up, uh, the tool of the trade that we mentioned in the interview, which is in uh, Eric's book, I, I think is is a useful tool if you haven't had uh, exposure to the concept of PopDoc or you may be familiar with the ODA loop. It basically gives you a framework for making operational decisions. So this is real time in the heat of the moment, 3 a.m. How, how do you decide what to do? How do you um, work through uh, actually making decisions? So again, the PopDoc acronym stands for perceive, orient, predict, decide, operationalize, and then communicate. Um, maybe a bit simplistic, but I think it's a, still a powerful uh, concept, and it kind of allows you to just be a bit more thoughtful in your decision making and ask yourself, where are we in this process? And uh, it can help you, I think, uh, in terms of running meetings and trying to gauge um, agreement and making sure that people are feeling heard and uh, making it a little bit more superliminal for how we're making decisions. Yeah, I like the frameworks to, to try and help you at least put language to what it is that you're doing in a, in a leadership position. And one of my favorite, uh, and as a bonus tool of the trade for today, I suppose, one of my favorite frameworks is the Sinefin framework. Uh, this is this is about describing different types of systems or different types of situations and matching an initial management style or initial leadership style to them. So if you can imagine in your mind a four quadrant box in the bottom right hand corner is the simple systems or the obvious systems. These are things that are predictable, understandable, and really all you have to do is sense, categorize, and respond. So what's going on? Okay, I've got a protocol for that and just apply the protocol. This is the realm of best practice. This is this is our day-to-day -day operations. Just above that, in the uh, quadrant just above that, there's the complicated realm. So complicated situations or complicated systems are things like uh, uh, the aircraft carrier or the nuclear facility. These are things that are very difficult to understand, but with enough expertise, you can get to the root of the problem or you can predict what might happen. So these tightly coupled or tightly uh, connected systems, a good way to lead in that situation is to sense, analyze, and respond. So this is the realm of good practice. This is about getting the right people in the room, understanding the problem, that analysis part of it, and then crafting a measured response. Just to the left of that is the complex environments. And this is where I think we live 
for the most part in disaster management. Complexity, I like to say, is anytime people are involved. So basically loosely coupled situations, you can't really trace cause and effect until after it's happened potentially. And this is the realm of emergent practice or basically probing sensing what your actions have uh, created or sensing um, uh, what is what is happening and then responding so it's it's not about best practice it's not about uh, what other people have done it's about what the situation needs in the moment and then at the very bottom uh, there's chaotic situations and this is you cannot trace cause and effect at all it's just all happening way too fast to get any grip on on what's happening and this is my favorite uh, of the management styles and it starts with action do something sense what happened after you did something and then either change tack or keep on that same direction if it worked well so this is the the novel practice uh realm right so this uh we'll put a picture of this up in uh, the twitter feed as well just so you can visualize it but uh just help me understand grayson so i've got these four boxes obvious complicated complex and chaotic how do you decide which uh, category that you're in? Well, this will be very situationally dependent. I really like this idea of cause and effect. So if you can identify what the cause of the problem was, you're probably in a simple system. Or if you're really good, you might be in a complicated system. If you can't identify it right up front, there's a good chance that you're in a complex or chaotic system, or you might just not be the right person to lead. <laughs> but uh, uh, assuming that you are. The one thing that I really like about this is that it recognizes that um, if, you, you, if you pick the wrong one, if you use the wrong uh, style of, of, uh, of leadership, then you can be the problem. So there's this cliff in the diagram between simple and chaotic. And if you try to apply a protocol-driven response to a chaotic environment, you will fail. Wait a second. Wait a second. You're telling me that the checklist <laughs> might be wrong. Crazy. And that is what right. I cling to in a disaster. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Checklists are great for controlled situations. Uh, my favorite disaster saying is that it would not be a disaster if you could solve it with a checklist. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, that's key. Checklists certainly have a role. And for, you know, if you're taking off and landing an airplane, uh, please checklist away. Um, but mm -hmm. if you are, you know, landing uh, upside down in a, uh, you know, flying submarine, uh, something that hasn't been done before, then it might not be the best, uh, the best tool <laughs> for you. So this is a, a great uh, uh, way of thinking of it. I really like how they've separated complicated versus complex and um and then chaotic i mean that's that's goes against again a lot of our, our training act without a plan i mean that uh it you know isn't what we're we're taught right we're taught to go around the planning p one more time so um that's uh, i think a really interesting uh, model all right well that's a great conversation uh, just to kind of summarize what we've talked about with the meta leadership um I think the, the takeaway for me from, from this whole uh, reading the book and, and the chat with Eric is really just understanding how leaders and decisions are made in a disaster and how sometimes going beyond the formal or predefined scope of decision making and uh, leadership hierarchies is what really defines uh, an excellent crisis leader. Uh, leading up, leading sideways, leading laterally, all these, all these different things. And if you're the person that can... Uh, figure out which, what type of disaster you're in. If is it 
complicated? Is it complex? Where you are in the POFDOC cycle? These sort of questions really do start to help, I think, elevate our response and, and, and frankly, professionalize our, our response uh, to disasters. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to recognize our sponsors. This episode was sponsored in part by ATB. Uh, ATB understands that sometimes we all need a boost, and that's why they started ATB Boost R, a crowdfunding platform for small businesses. So if you have an idea and want to test it with a crowd, Boost R can help you raise funds to grow and expand into the community. Whether you're a cafe in need of a new espresso machine or a boutique wanting to open a new location, check out ATB boostr.ca to find out more. It sounds like you're using a little bit of swarm methodology mm-hmm. there. <laughs> That's right. That's why I picked that one. Yeah. We're also a part of uh, the APN, the Alberta Podcast Network. It's a collaborative group of talented individuals working to make your drive to work a bit more bearable. Uh, today, we'd like to give a special shout out to the podcast Let's Find Out, who have been kind enough to record a little promo, which we'll play for you right now. Hi, I'm Chris Changan Phillips. I host a show called Let's Find Out, where we try to have fun learning about history here in Edmonton. We investigate local myths. Because I think the bridge is so iconic, the fact that they've kind of gone up unrecognized. It's a little bit sad. We do taste tests. It's such a good color. Cheers. And right now we're doing a whole season about how humans and nature have shaped each other here in Edmonton. Grizzly bears used to be largely a prairie species as well. Find us at letsfindoutpodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Eric McNulty for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of meta-leadership. We'd love to hear from you on the topic of leadership, so send us an email at team at epicpodcast.ca. Send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.